Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can come together and study your word and understand more of its applications to our lives. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come now, Lord, and to speak to each one of our hearts. Cleanse us of sin, open us to your leading, and help us to understand more of what we need so that we can be closer to you and more ready for your coming. Thank you. Amen. All right, today I'm talking about overcoming escapism. And my husband and I have an unofficial uh, bet going as to whether I can actually make it through all of these slides or not, because he insists that I've never made it through this many slides in this short a time before. Yeah, except I don't have a cable and I don't have any way to uh, show my slides. Perfect. Um, uh, yeah, that. <laughs> I have other gifts. This isn't one of them. Right. So um, we're talking about overcoming escapism. And I have a lot of information to share, so I may run a little fast. I hope you guys don't mind. Um, talking about escapism, there are so many different aspects of escapism. Alcohol, drugs, you know, all those things. But I'm not really focusing on those things today. I'm talking more about the things that good Christians may think it's okay to escape to, mostly. Because it's a struggle for every single one of us. I remember a friend that I uh, worked with, we were Bible workers together, and he struggled sometimes with movies. He would just be like, I really, I really just want to watch a movie, Nicole. And then, then he'd say, you know what? No, I'm convicted. I'm not going to watch it. And he would, you know, walk out and then come back, you know, 10 minutes later. You know what? I'm not convicted anymore. I'm going to watch this. <laughs> uh, he wanted to escape. But then later on in life, as he started drifting away from the Lord, there were other things that he was escaping to. And he said, well, you know, for a while he was escaping to homosexuality. Then when I talked to him later, I said, how are you doing? He said, that's actually not a battle for me anymore. Now what I'm, what I'm dealing with is just alcohol. If only I could stop drinking like this. And then there were other times that he would be dealing with drugs and other times that he would be struggling with smoking. Just so many different things. The thing with his problem was he wasn't just addicted to many different things. He was really addicted to one thing, and that's escape. He wanted to escape from his pain, escape from having to think deeply about his life. So when he was escaping, what he was really escaping from was God, allowing God to be the center of his life and his identity and his worship. Escapism is a problem, and it's a very scary problem because it's about worship. It's about where our hearts are. You know, you can tell where a person's heart is by how they use their spare time. And that's a frightening thing to think about with the way that many of us use our spare time these days. So I'm going to talk a lot today about socially acceptable methods of escape and how those principles apply to all escapism. I'm sure the Lord will help you to understand. First, it's probably useful for us to define what escapism is. I looked up online for dictionary definitions of it and found a couple of them I thought were very useful. One is the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. The avoidance of reality by absorption of the mind in entertainment or in an imaginative situation, activity, etc. So you can see that's a pretty broad category, right? It can be video gaming, movies, music, food, sex, whatever. There are all kinds of things that people can escape to instead of escaping to God. That's what we're talking about. Um, there are so many kinds of escapism. Some of them that are very common are like food addictions, and that can be 
anorexia, sometimes a control addiction combined with food, or it can be more of a bulimia, an I just give in and, you know, tumble, go ahead and gorge myself, and then either feel terrible and get fatter, or maybe purge and set up a dangerous cycle of teaching my body to throw up. There's fantasy, there's pornography, or sex, or lust, music, shopping. Shopping is a, such a socially acceptable one that people will just advertise, yeah, I'm a shopaholic, it's wonderful, it's like, it's a common theme that people think isn't even serious, but it can be serious. I've known people who are so compulsive about their shopping that they're running up bills thousands and thousands of dollars, and their spouse can't even put food on the table for their children. And then it's finding stashes of expensive shoes and clothes and things that this person is buying because they are compulsively trying to escape and feel better about themselves through their shopping addiction. We also have movies, social networking, popularity, compulsive behaviors, romantic relationships, substance abuse. I'm sure some of you can relate to some of these, and all of you know people who have these issues. These are some of the things that I figure are the most likely to be issues on our campus, but there's by no means an exhaustive list here. Why do people escape? Um, some research shows individuals have been shown to watch TV when they have a lower need for cognition, quote, or in other words, to prevent them from thinking. Escapism is the opposite of, what is it? Mindfulness. mindfulness. Escapism is the opposite of mindfulness. Wanting to get away from it all. And that's such a common phrase these days. You'd think that we in Western culture who have enough food and safe shelters to live in, and for the majority of things we have everything we need and most of what we want, you'd think we wouldn't be the ones so desperate to escape. It would be people in other countries who are refugees, who are desperate, who are dealing with grief as their friends and families are killed or missing. But we in America have a massive problem with escapism. Is escapism really all that dangerous? Because you know there's a part of us that when we hear that we're like, but we do need to get away sometimes, don't we? Is that all bad? No, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But it is dangerous in the way that we're living nowadays. Let me give you some examples of that. But escape in our culture is considered normal and even necessary. I've had so many times people tell me when I'm like, you know, we need to get something done. Well, I'm just tired. I just want to kick back and go not do anything. I don't want to accomplish anything. I want to go have fun. And then their way to have fun and escape is some form of entertainment, typically. And whatever that entertainment is, it's a substitute for what God wants to give us, which is recreation. God does want us to get away. He does want us to find a healthy way to rejuvenate ourselves, but escapism is not it. Now, for example, when I was a teenager, before I had given my life to Christ, I remember I was addicted to movies. Now, we lived in the middle of nowhere, which was a fantastic thing in so many ways. We were out in nature. We had so much fun. My sisters and I were out in the woods a lot and working in the garden. So many great things about that. But we, we didn't have a television, but we did have eventually the opportunity to watch movies. And my mom would let us pick out a movie at Blockbuster or something. We'd pick out something to watch and bring it home. I liked to let my sister go in Blockbuster with my mom and get her to pick something because she was better at persuading mom to get something really fun. 
somehow she's just very persuasive. My sister's over here, so I can talk about her behind her back. <laughs> and you know what we would say as our prime way to persuade my mom to let us watch a movie? Mom, we're so bored. Exactly. You guys are familiar with this feeling, right? Mom, I'm so bored. Please, can we just rent something? And so we go rent a movie. And of course, there was no internet and all that because I was raised in the Stone Ages. And after we watch a movie, guess what? Do you think that we were now energized and no longer bored? Or do you think we were even more bored when the credits rolled? Even more bored. You're right, because that's the way it is. We all understand that feeling, right? When the credits roll and life comes crashing back down and we're like, oh man, I have to get that assignment done. What have I been doing watching YouTube videos for an hour? Or whatever it is, you know? We, we have the feeling when it comes back and we're like, oh, it was so romantic watching that beautiful story, but I don't have a boyfriend. <laughs> it's worse. It's worse, right? This is one of the things that distinguishes escapism. And you can tell your escapist when this is how you feel. When you go get yourself absorbed in the thing that you want to be refreshed by, and at the end of it, you're more debilitated than when you started. That's because you've been escaping to it instead of escaping to God. Instead of recreation, it's been entertainment. Now, there were a lot of things that I escaped to as a kid. It wasn't just movies. Um, I, I remember one time I was... Uh, my, my older sisters went away to academy, and then I got to have their bedroom. And one night, as I was thinking, I was like, you know, they used to have all these novels. I wonder where they went. I wonder if they hid them somewhere here in our room. So I started searching the room. I looked under the bed. <gasps> there they were, the novel collection. It was all hidden underneath there, all these raunchy novels, you know, with this woman flinging herself into some guy's arms and her cleavage hanging out of her lovely, long, luxurious dress. And, and the title is some passion in the castle kind of thing. You know what I mean? So there were all these raunchy novels under there. Wow. And I feasted on them for weeks. I'd go to bed and stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning reading novels. And it certainly didn't make me energized for the next day. And it certainly didn't make me a happier or better person. And one day I realized, oh man, I really need to do something about this. So I pulled out all the novels and I laid them out on the floor and I was thinking, what should I do? And just then, what do you know? My younger sister walked in the room. And she's like, what are you doing? Of course, she didn't know about my novels here. I said, look what I found under the bed. Isn't this terrible? Let's go burn them all. And that's what we did. <laughs> and that was the end of all those novels. But you know, I still, when I would go through a supermarket and I would see the novels, you know, these uh, rotating stands with all the women in their dresses and their passionate princes, and I would just look at them and go, wow. Would anybody see me if I started reading just a little bit, just a little bit, you know? Because that's how we always escape, right? Nobody says, I think I'm going to blow this whole week. Well, maybe some people do, but <laughs> most of us, that's not what we do. It's like, I'm just going to take a quick minute to check Facebook. I'm just going to spend a few minutes. I'm just going to read this one book, watch this one movie, listen to this one romantic song, and then we start spiraling. You know how it is? So I, I would listen to love songs until I was so melancholy, thinking about my boyfriend that I didn't have. 
how wonderful it would be if only someone loved me. You know, we didn't even have the internet back then. I can't imagine how obsessed I could have easily gotten because I was dealing with chronic depression and some intense anxiety issues and I wasn't facing them. So therefore, I was trying to escape into something to make me feel better. Um, this is a common problem that's getting to be more and more prevalent in our culture. In a large survey of Korean internet users, overuse of the internet was associated with depression, loneliness, and compulsiveness. Many of these addicts, when surveyed, said that they used the internet to avoid reality and were significantly more likely to use the internet in response to feelings of sadness or depression. This is pretty alarming because an estimated 5 to 10 percent of Americans self-report as being addicted to the internet. I think the real um, proportion is much larger, but people don't want to admit they're addicts, right? How many alcoholics want to say, yeah, me, I'm an alcoholic, right? And internet addiction seems even more harmless because it's not destroying your liver, it's just destroying your mind. A study on adolescents found that those who employed avoidant coping strategies as opposed to approach-oriented coping reported the highest levels of depressive symptoms up to two years later. You see, we're dealing with some really serious problems these days because to the escape artist, real life can be delayed by the painkiller, just like an alcoholic. He's miserable, he's depressed, his wife has left, his trailer is dirty, and he doesn't feel like going out and cleaning everything up, so he's like, I'm just going to go sit and read things on the internet for a while. But when he comes at the end of, of that, doesn't he feel worse? Now he's exhausted and the trailer is still dirty, right? What about, could he do the same thing with alcohol? The next morning he wakes up and is like, oh man, everything is still a mess in my life. <clears throat> I'm still unemployed, but now I have a bad headache too. Right? When we come off of our drug, whatever it is, it's worse than when we started out. You see, the weapons of mass distraction are destroying us because the painkiller makes us not deal with the real issue. If I have a brain tumor, but I just take painkillers instead of getting a surgery to get rid of it, I'm going to, those painkillers are actually what's killing me, right? Because the pain could make me pay attention. Pain is supposed to be an, a warning that there's something wrong. There was a, a time when I had a, a bone infection in my foot. I would never have done anything about it because there was no visible sign on the outside that I had this terrible bone infection in my foot. What made me do something about it was the overwhelming pain, this agonizing pain that I could hardly move, I could hardly think. So I did something about it. I went to the doctor, I found out what was wrong, and I got antibiotics by IV. The doctor said if you'd waited much longer, you would have lost that foot. I needed to do something, and I did something because of the pain. But if you can use painkillers to kill the pain of your dissonant life, the ways that you're not relating to Christ in the way that you should, you may never do anything about it. And then you don't just lose your foot, you may lose your eternal life. Log out is the hardest button to click. Isn't that true? This is a problem with escape that's uh, another characteristic of escape. You can tell you're escaping if the longer you escape, the harder it is to stop escaping, right? You, you know, man, it's 12 o'clock. Why am I still on Facebook? Let me just scroll a little bit farther, <laughs> right? You've observed this at midnight where you'll study just as soon as you finish just checking Twitter just for a few minutes or, or Instagram or whatever it is that you're using. 
It can be, I will start exercising just as soon as I finish this bar of chocolate, or this set of things that I've been eating, or things that I've been doing. I will get back to God as soon as I resolve things with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Escaping is the thing that never ends because it just seems like a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and it'll be okay, right? A little bit more is what has killed people for thousands of years. This cartoon, mom said, go play outside. The guy is playing his video games outside, right? Countless students have failed college because of exactly this addiction, right here at Southern and anywhere else. And you know, as much as it's funny looking at the picture here, being tens of thousands of dollars in debt with no degree is not funny at all. Um, it's such a big problem that in December of 2008, former Federal Communications Commissioner Deborah Taylor Tate stated that online gaming, specifically World of Warcraft, was one of the top reasons for college dropouts in the US. Now, I'm not saying that she's exactly right, and I'm not saying that if you drop out of college, you're going to work at McDonald's all of your life. But wouldn't that be a real tragedy, that because you couldn't stop playing hours of video games, you put yourself into a job or a life that's dead end? Because make no mistake about it, if you're playing World of Warcraft that compulsively, it's going to be very hard to break free from this escapist lifestyle. And what's that going to do to your marriage? What's it going to do to your parenting? What's it going to do to your quality of life? It's going to make you tend to eat compulsively, dress in whatever you feel like, do whatever you feel like, and just basically turn you into an emotional and spiritual basket case, somebody who cannot pull yourself together. You need to get to the emotional and spiritual gym and start working out. But instead, you'll be like, well, I'll get there soon, as soon as I feel like it. Television exposure and total media exposure in adolescence are associated with increased odds of depressive symptoms in young adulthood, especially in young men. And for adolescents, use of role-playing games is predictive of internalizing problem behaviors such as anxiety or social withdrawal. There, there's tons of research on the internet that you can find that substantiates what I'm telling you. I'm just giving you a few little things. You can see the references, but I don't have time to read them all. Um, that whole lack of purpose and that sense of boredom that my sister and I had when we were teenagers, I remember after we stopped watching movies, it was very hard, you know, with the withdrawal symptoms of everything. It was difficult, but I remember like a year or two later, she and I were talking one day and I said, you know, I can't remember the last time I was bored. And she said, you know, that's true. Neither of us got bored anymore. We had books to read, things to do, all kinds of excitement in our lives because Christ was now running our lives and we were no longer bored. It's not a nicotine patch, it's a CD-ROM. I'm trying to overcome computer addiction. <laughs> I think all of us can relate to some sort of internet addiction. It's so easy to get drawn into all the endless stories and things to watch and to read and to do on the internet. But that's not the only thing that all of us have in common. Food addiction. Food addiction may initially seem harmless, right? In fact, I'm probably just making everybody hungry looking at that picture, right? Anybody get dessert today? I didn't. Right, so <laughs> there, there is a major issue with food addiction that is visible. 
whereas with internet addiction, it's not visible. But with food addiction, there are visible side effects, sometimes. However, there are many people I know who eat compulsively anything in sight and never gain a pound. Have you ever known anybody like that? Doesn't that just make you want to smack them? Yeah, sorry, in a sanctified way, but you know. <laughs> just in order to try to help them escape from their escapism. You know, you know what I'm talking about. That the visible effects of food addiction may be very serious. And I've seen students here at Southern who they get here, they're used to eating healthfully at home, and within just a few months, they balloon. You can see, oh my goodness, this person has gained 40 pounds in one semester. What is happening? It's not good because they have been controlled from the outside rather than having from controls from within. When they start to escape, they can start escaping big time. And then, of course, they get frightened, and we have a huge problem with people dealing with bulimia and anorexia here on our campus and all around America. When you have so much food available, it's such an easy medication. But then after you've gorged yourself, how do you feel? Terrible. Yeah, well, fulfilled for a little while. And then you realize, wow, my brain is clouded. I feel miserable. I feel depressed. But there are also invisible effects of food addiction. Yale University did a study with 48 young women. Some of them were fat, some of them were thin, lean to obese. It was a wide range. They used functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to study the brain activity in these girls. They offered them a chocolate milkshake and analyzed what was going on in their brains on the MRI when they saw, just when they just saw the chocolate milkshake. And then when they drank the chocolate milkshake, what was happening? There was an activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, just seeing the milkshake, and the medial orbitofrontal cortex, brain areas that have been implicated in an addict's urge to use drugs. And the activity was higher among women in the study who had high scores on a scale that assessed their eating habits for signs of addictive behavior. In other words, those women who had been eating compulsively and were addicted to food, they were using it as a drug. They weren't just eating. They were eating to satisfy themselves. When they had addictive compulsive tendencies in their eating habits, the milkshake lit up their addictive parts of their brain more. I know that's a simplistic way to explain it, but it's a very alarming thing, isn't it? That your brain will actually change in the way it functions as you eat compulsively. That's going to make it a lot harder for you to break the urge, isn't it? Basically, what that's showing is that this person is addicted. When the cocaine addict sees cocaine, the same part of their brain lights up as when the milkshake addict sees a milkshake. And that's something really scary. Seeing a milkshake can activate the same areas of the brain that light up when an addict sees cocaine, Dr. Chad Larson said. These findings support the theory that compulsive food consumption may be driven in part by an enhanced anticipation of the rewarding properties of food. We know food addiction is harmful because it shortens lifespans, it damages quality of life. You know, you've seen people huffing their way through the grocery store. It's miserable for them to even walk 100 feet because they're so overweight. But there are so many invisible effects as well in the mind. It seems reasonable that there is some psychic cost to living outside of reality, right? Not just the physical, but the mental effects of escapism are very serious. 
the use of escapist or avoidant coping, including the excessive withdrawal into technology, is a recipe for negative feelings and disconnection from others. In other words, there's a cycle of escape that happens that's alarming. The more I feel down and disconnected, the more I feel the oppressive urge to escape. And the devil won't say, why don't you blow your life? He'll say, just a few minutes, just escape for a little while. And then once you start, you're rolling down a hill that just gets steeper the farther you go. And then when you escape, eventually, when you hit to the, re the remorse stage, that morning after feeling, you're like, oh, I hate this. You're going to feel an ever stronger urge to escape because now you feel even more down, even more disconnected. I've just blown a whole day. I had so much schedule that I was going to do. You know that feeling you have? I remember Friday afternoon feeling when I was a, col a, a college student, you know, wow, look at this long list of things that I have to get done. I'm going to get them all wiped out by Sunday evening. Sunday evening at 9 o'clock is going to be a triumphant moment for me as I look back at everything I crossed off my list, right? So Friday afternoon, at first I'm just going to get my room clean, right? And then somebody says, why don't you come and eat supper with me? I'm like, well, it's only a half an hour, you know. So off I go to supper, and then we go for a walk, and then we're hanging out for the evening, and then, you know, well, then there's Sabbath, and I'm not going to study on Sabbath, but Saturday night, I just can't, I just can't say no to this pizza party, right? But I'll study really hard Sunday morning. I'm going to get up early Sunday, and that doesn't quite happen because I stay up until midnight Saturday night, but Sunday morning by 9 a.m., I get up and I make the list, right? I'm going to get it done. 9 o'clock, I'm going to study this for an hour. Then if I've studied faithfully for an hour, then I'm going to give myself a 10-minute break. I was so proud of myself for being so disciplined in the first hour. And then the 10-minute break when I went out to get a drink and take a walk, oh, I ran into a friend. And, you know, then we were talking, and then they needed somebody to encourage them. And then before I know it, it's an hour. And, you know, and then it's lunchtime before I know it, and I'm just going to eat something. And then I fall asleep when I'm trying to study that afternoon. You know the, the feeling? And you hit 9 o'clock Sunday night, and there's this impending sense of panic, this wall of assignments coming at you. Because one inch after another, we make unrealistic expectations, and then when we can't fulfill them, we fall apart. There's also such a, de a debilitating influence, especially when we escape into some things, like fantasy or, you know, romantic movies may be a big thing for women, for, for guys, things that make them feel more powerful, like video games that give the illusion of power, or even movies, music, you know, heavy beat, something that makes you feel powerful when you feel powerless is going to have a real grip on you because God is the one who makes you long for power. He wants you to go to him to satisfy that longing for power so that his power can work in you and make you invincible in his spirit. For women, God has made us and all of us have the longing for love and for power, for worth, for the ability to, to connect with God in ways that we will be able to overcome anything that comes at us. Women tend to long for love, to crave a sense of being deeply loved. God has put that in us to long to connect with him. But many people when they sense that call of the Spirit, come to me, come away with me, let me satisfy your heart, they go, I will, as soon as I've just watched a movie or listened to some music or engaged in a little bit of fantasy so that I can feel like I'm loved. And then, of course, that cycle begins. When I feel down or disconnected from God, 
I'm going to escape to something. And after I've escaped, I'm going to feel so low, so miserable that I don't feel like I can come back to God. This sets up a dangerous cycle, especially when people are dealing with pornography or masturbation kind of escape addictions, because when they go to those things, later on, as soon as they've finished, they feel such crushing sense of shame and worthlessness and unlovability that now they feel so far from God, they cannot go back to Him. When you feel you cannot go back to God and you cannot believe that he still loves you and that he will give you the power to overcome this addiction, you're left with two bad options. You're gonna, if you believe your feelings, you're going to have two bad options. One is just throw your hands up and go, it's no use. Fall into the abyss and engage in your compulsive behavior for a, a period of time until you're so sick of it you just can't stand it any longer. That's one bad option. The other option may be even worse because it's the one the Pharisees took. That is, I will work my way back to God. I'll pray really hard. I'm going to have devotions for two hours every day. I'm going to fast. I'm going to exercise. These aren't bad things. They're all wonderful things. But if we engage in them as a way to persuade God to forgive us, to persuade God to love us again, we have set ourselves into a poisonous cycle of self-righteousness. Pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart to the Spirit of God. And when I believe that I can earn my way back to God, that if I mess up, I'm going to have to do a whole lot to earn my way back, but eventually, eventually I might persuade Him to love me. And sure enough, it works. After a few days or a few weeks, I start feeling like God loves me again. Then I believe He loves me. Then I believe that He forgives me. What I have just done is set myself up to definitely fall again. You know why? If I know I can earn my way back to God again, it's only a matter of time until I fall again, because I can get back to Him again. I know I'll have to work really hard to persuade Him to love me, to persuade Him to forgive me, but I'll get it again. All the devil has to do is persuade me to feel empty enough and believe my feelings that I'll go back to my escape, and I'm sunk. I'm trapped in a cycle of self-righteousness and falling. We have to believe that God loves us because of who He is, not because of who we are or how righteous we are. Now I'm going to talk about the four deadly laws of escapism. Four reasons, by no means an exhaustive list, but four reasons why escape is so dangerous to the soul. Number one, escapism destroys relationships. You may think that just escaping to watch a movie with your friend or hang out for the afternoon, it's all going to be fine. But what you do when you set up an escapist pattern is you de design for yourself shallow relationships. When a, a man starts engaging in video gaming compulsively, he sets himself up to have a shallow relationship with his girlfriend or his wife or his children or his other friends. Pornography? Even worse, because it's such an alienating addiction, it destroys your relationships. It makes you feel you cannot be honest with anyone. What if they knew? Why is that so important? Because God wants us in healthy, happy relationships. It means everything to Him. How do we know this? Because the law of God is twofold. What are the two laws that God has given to us? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And what's his second law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. And look, they're relational. 
God says the very thing that all of eternity is centered on, whether I am going to be saved or lost, is all about my relationships, my relationship with him and my relationship with others. The whole law of God is relational. The way that God sorts those who are saved and those who are lost into two baskets is those who, who make relationship their first priority, relationship with him, relationship with one another, and those who refuse to do so. Escapism is such a big deal because it destroys relationships with God and with others. How do relationships grow? Two things. If I want to get to know somebody, how am I going to get to know them? When I met my husband, he was a nice guy, but he lived in Africa. I lived in New York. I wasn't particularly motivated to move to Africa or to get to know a guy who lived in Africa. He, however, was rather motivated. And over time, not very long, I started becoming motivated too. So do you know what we started doing? Talking. We started communicating. We were communicating long distance because he went back to Africa, so we had to actually put in quite a bit of effort to communicate. We didn't have any Skype back then. It cost, like, I don't remember, it was some insane amount of money to, per minute for me to call him. So we mostly chatted on MSN Messenger and Yahoo Messenger. One or the other of them would work most days. And we would spend about an hour every day in communication and in quality time. Now, we weren't touching each other. We weren't seeing each other's faces. But what we were doing was spending quality time and communicating. This is how I know that people can build close relationships with those they can't see. I hear all the time from people, well, I know I need to pray, but I just can't really connect with God. I can't see him. I can't feel him touching me. Therefore, I can't build a close relationship with him. You know what that is? That's an escapist excuse. It's an escapist excuse because I don't want to put in the work to build this relationship. I could easily have said, you know, you live in Africa, I live in America. It was nice meeting you, but I don't feel like putting in the work to actually get to know you. And that would have been the end of it, wouldn't it? But instead, we prioritize communication and quality time. Now, you can sit next to a person in class for four years and not know them, not really build a relationship with them, right? You have time together, but it's not quality time, and you're not communicating. You can have people you communicate with a lot, but if you're just arguing with each other, you're exchanging harsh words, you can't build a relationship between you, it may be communication, but it's not healthy communication. It's not loving communication. So genuine communication built together with quality time is how relationships grow. The same way that human relationships grow, our relationship with our Father in Heaven can grow. But what does escapism steal? It steals our quality time. It steals our communication. How do I know that? Our culture is becoming more and more so obsessed that we can't even literally hold a long conversation without everybody going to their phones, right? Well, I, I know you're talking to me, but I'm just, I just have to check and see if there's anything more exciting going on online than my conversation with you. Isn't that terrible? Haven't you experienced that in your relationships with other people? Even putting together a seminar like this, you know, my husband and I are looking at the slides and going, man, that's a lot of writing. People these days are so escapist, they cannot sit through a seminar where there's a bunch of writing, things being read, the way they could have 100 years ago. Because we're so escapist, our brains have become potato soup. We can't focus. 
long enough to read through all those sentences, we start going, oh, what's for supper? You know, I wonder if it's raining. I need to text so-and-so, you know? Escapism is a huge deal because it is destroying our communication and our quality time with one another. Some researchers say that addicts aren't always to even trying to reach feeling high. They're trying to reach feeling normal. Many people live in a chronic state of depression looking for a surge here and there that can bring them up to feeling normal and healthy. And then when they find something that makes them temporarily have the illusion of feeling normal and healthy, they're like, more, 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 give me more. Try to get themselves up higher. Then the next time that they're free of that thing, it gets worse. This is how concert goers, well, they'll go to a concert, get themselves so pumped up, they can't think about anything else for a while. But then the next day or the next week, they hit a low, severe depression because they have artificially amped themselves up to a non-normal, an abnormal level of excitement, but they haven't actually dealt with the things that were causing their depression. People are just trying to reach feeling normal, but because our depression is a symptom of our lack of connection with God, we can't do it. And then when we mask the symptoms, go to something else that makes us feel better temporarily, what we do is get thirstier. We get farther from God. It's like a person stranded out in the ocean on a boat, so thirsty, they're desperate, and finally they start drinking the salt water. It may feel a little better, but you're only worse afterward, right? The salt water makes them even thirstier, and this is what happens with our addictions. Having more internet relationships is now associated statistically with having higher levels of emotional loneliness instead of having face-to-face -face relationships. In other words, face-to-face -face relationships are better for you. Online, solely online relationships tend to make people even lonelier than they were when they didn't have any friends. A common fantasy realm is being desirable, especially when a person doesn't feel desirable, they want to go online and find somebody who will find them desirable. But this is a catch-22 because if you paint yourself as whoever you want to be, if I put up my best-looking picture, right? So they take 100 selfies, pick out the best one, put it online, write up a description of who they want to be and the parts of themselves they want other people to know. They put up this, this is who I am. And then everybody's like, wow, you want to be my friend, don't you? You seem so cool, so funny, so pretty. Is that going to make me feel better about myself? No, because I know these people out here don't actually know me. If they knew the raw parts of me, the parts of me that I'm not telling, they would turn away in disgust. So those relationships built on the illusion of closeness, but with the, the understanding in the back of my mind, this person doesn't really know me. They don't know the bad things. If I told just how miserable I am, if I told them what I thought of them, unfriend, be gone, right? We live in a whole society of unfriending. When a relationship requires work, what do we do? Forget it. I have friends. I don't need you. I can go find somebody who doesn't make me miserable. Unfriend, I don't want you commenting on my posts anymore because you talk about yourself or because you said something about me that I didn't enjoy. And we dispose of our relationships the way people dispose of the paper around their sub sandwich. It was useful for a while. You made me feel good about myself. I felt happy when I was with you, but I no longer feel happy when I'm with you, and you don't make me feel good about myself. So 
done with you, wad you up, throw you in the trash can, and move on without even looking back. Living in a society like that creates fragile friendships. I no longer can be honest about who I am because what if people knew who I really am? And perhaps worst of all, the farther we go into that, the more impossible it is to be real with people. The more insecure we are if they really knew how bad I am because of course we're doing compulsive things on the side and trying to hide them. What if people really knew? We need a higher and higher dose of the same drug in order to get the same high. This works especially with porn when all you want is to be desirable to somebody. You can go online, you can find a movie that might make you feel desirable for a while. But what about later? Then what? Now you feel worthless, even less desirable. If anybody knew about this problem I have, what would they think of me? Now we're learning, Dr. Christine McGrath, a psychologist, says, now we're learning the more time you spend on social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, the more likely you are to feel depressed. Now is that a correlation or causation? Do depressed people spend more time on Facebook or people who are on Facebook get more depressed? It's probably a cycle, right? It's probably both. But either way, what's key to that is escapism. When a person is going to Facebook to escape instead of just to connect with those they actually love, that's when there's a problem. It's not all internet use or social networking use that's evil because people who have connections with real people that they actually love and they use social networking to connect with them, those people don't have the same statistical um, dam damage. Um, they don't have this correlation with depression and anxiety because they're connecting with people who know them in real life and accept them with all their flaws. It's when you're just connecting with people there and they don't really know who you are. They only know who you want people to think you are that you deal with problems. Having more internet relationships is associated with higher levels of emotional loneliness than having face-to-face -face relationships. One of the main problems with this is that People want to have a fantasy of who they are. They want people to think, that's who I am. This is what I look like. These pictures that I've posted online. If somebody tags me in a picture and it doesn't make me look good, quick, quick, untag it. We don't want people to think of me looking that way. I want them to think of me looking this way. The problem is, when you, have, when you can set up a positive fantasy, an illusion of this is who I am, lots of people know me this way. Lots of people believe I am this person, but you aren't actually that person, the more you deal with that double life, the more you dislike who you really are. The more you feel the need to pretend you're not that person who you really are. All right, number two, escapism destroys the power of connected, vigorous thinking. Even fiction which contains no suggestion of impurity and which may be intended to teach excellent principles is harmful. It encourages the habit of hasty and superficial reading merely for the story. Isn't this so much more true of movies than it is of novels back then? Thus, it tends to destroy the power of connected and vigorous thought. It unfits the soul to contemplate the great problems of duty and destiny. Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 383. There's a Surgeon General's warning here. The following program may cause your IQ to drop 15 points. But do you think they stop watching because of that? No, that's not the way it goes. Number three, escapism weans from prayer and the love of spiritual things. And Ellen White said in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, pages 241 and 242, you are indulging an evil which threatens to destroy your spirituality. It will eclipse all the beauty and interest of the sacred pages. 
In other words, the Bible becomes boring to you when you're absorbed in other things that are exciting. It is love for storybooks, tales, and other reading which does not have an influence for good upon the mind that is in any way dedicated to the service of God. It produces a false, unhealthy excitement, fevers the imagination, unfits the mind for usefulness, and disqualifies it for any spiritual exercise. It weans the soul from prayer and love of spiritual things. Have you ever found that after you watch the movie, you just can't study your Bible? Your mind keeps getting distracted. You can't pray. You see, escapism allows us to numb ourselves to a reality that we do not want to accept. It allows us to avoid feelings of shame or emotional pain. In other words, it allows you to bypass the voice of the Holy Spirit convicting you. By imagining ourselves as someone who doesn't have the constraints that we do, or who possesses something that we lack, we can experience that life without having to do the work and have the luck necessary to achieve it. Number four, finally, escapism corrupts and destroys the soul. A large share of the periodicals and books that, like the frogs, frogs of Egypt, are overspreading the land are not merely commonplace, idle, and enervating, but unclean and degrading. Their effect is not merely to intoxicate and ruin the mind, but to corrupt and destroy the soul. I'm not even really dealing too much with this topic in this particular seminar, but porn and sexual addiction, these kinds of things, are destroying the mind. The more you fever your imagination and have to have something above normal to make yourself excited, the more intense that thirst is going to be and the higher your demand for something different, something you haven't seen. Statistics indicate that over 50% of men who claim to be Christian are addicted to pornography, and most of them are engaging in it regularly. And that may not be true of all women, but when you add in the novels, the fantasy, the music, and movies and stuff, I'm convinced that women have just as much of a problem with sexual addiction as men. It's just different. And not only are people going to pornography, but they're going to worse and worse things. It's becoming more like Sodom online. Uh, close to 90% of pornography that's available online now involves disrespect or violence to women, to children. It's serious. This is not just two people doing things together anymore. It's very, very dangerous. Why is escapism such a big deal? Bottom line is, escapism is idolatry. It's going to something else instead of God, worshiping it, giving it my time, giving it my energy, giving it my devotion. It destroys my relationship with God. It destroys my relationship with others because it is worship of a false God, happiness instead of holiness pleasure instead of purity. And the more you escape, the more you paralyze your motivation to stop escaping. So the longer you go, I'm going to change soon, the more debilitating the effect will be upon your mind. But in order to escape escapism, you must take action. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.